You can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family. An old adage that the 33rd president of the United States, Harry S. Truman, knew all too well. Every family has that one black sheep, right? Or maybe you're like me and you're the black sheep. In the case of the Truman clan, that shameful distinction fell on James John Childs, a.k.a. Jim Crow Childs, Harry's uncle by marriage. A violent Missouri bushwhacker described by author David McCullough as universally hated and the stuff of children's nightmares. And believe it or not, Childs got the nickname Jim Crow due to his talent as a dancer. Minstrel dancing, to be precise. That's M-I-N-S-T-R-E-L. Not to be confused with the minstrel dance your wife does once a month as she frantically decides whether or not to hug you or just murder you in your sleep. Seems that back in the 1830s and 40s, there was a popular white entertainer by the name of Thomas Dartmouth Rice who performed a song and dance routine in blackface while mimicking African Americans. This persona he put on during the act was known as Jim Crow. Dude went on to tour all over the country, even in Europe, and it weren't long before Jim Crow was just a common phrase used to describe all white comedians who did these degrading blackface-type performances. And of course, years later, the term would be adopted as the identifier for the laws reinstating white supremacy in the South. And apparently, Truman's uncle was one hell of a Jim Crow dancer. Not exactly the type of association you'd want to have as a politician, right? Even in 1945, when Truman was elected. Oh, and don't worry, it gets much, much worse. Uncle Childs' comedy routine was the least of the future president's worries. Who was Jim Crow Childs? A true menace to society or just a poor misunderstood soul trying to dance away his sorrows? My name's Josh and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. By the way, this episode is brought to you by Tim. Yes, just Tim, uh, which I assume is either short for Timothy or Timifer, or maybe even Timotha. No last name because Tim likes to keep things simple and uncomplicated, kind of like me. So thank you, Tim, for supporting the show. It's very much appreciated, sir. All right, let's get down to business and talk about Jim Crow Childs, shall we? Born in Jackson County, Missouri in 1833, James Childs, like many of his bushwhacking counterparts, got his start as a man-killer long before the war between the states began. Jim's daddy was James C. Childs, a veteran of the Seminole and Mexican-American Wars, and two-time Missouri state senator. In 1856, holding the rank of colonel, the pro-slavery elder Childs led a group of Missouri fighters at the Battle of Osawatomie, over in Kansas, clashing with John Brown and his bunch. It's thought that Jim Crow Childs, already in his early 20s, almost certainly participated in this action. And then, in 1859, the then-26-year-old Childs killed his first man, that we know of at least, some poor bastard that made a casual, loose remark in regards to Jim's less-than-admirable table manners. Childs would be charged with murder, but seeing as how his family were prominent landowners, he would get off scot-free. Jim married Truman's Aunt Sally that November, and shortly thereafter embarked on a trip to Santa Fe, New Mexico. As it turns out, despite having a violent temper, Childs was apparently a half-decent wagon master. As such, he made numerous trips west, especially to California, where, according to one source, he owned the original land grant where Stanford University now stands, about 40 miles south of San Francisco. Be that as it may, Child's wife Sally just flat out refused to move any further west than Independence, Missouri, and that was that. 
Reckon she didn't have no issues relocating in a southerly direction, however, as the pair, along with their infant child Elijah, would move some 400 miles south to Sherman, Texas in 1861, where Uncle Jim Crow would open up a gambling hall slash saloon. Now, if you listen to the episode I did on Bloody Bill Anderson, link in the show notes, or if you just have a passing familiarity with the Missouri Gorillas, you likely recall that they did use the town of Sherman as a place to spend the winters. Unfortunately, I was unable to determine when James Childs first became associated with either Bloody Bill Anderson or Quantrill, although I did find a hint that possibly William Quantrill served as a bullwhacker on a wagon train led by Henry Childs, Jim's brother. So perhaps they did know each other before moving to Texas. Matter of fact, I think that's probably likely. Either way, it does appear that Jim Crow's migration to Sherman was a family affair, as his parents and other relatives made the move with him. Matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, the elder Childs would ultimately be buried there in Sherman at the time of his death in 1883. Now, like I said, Jim Crow Childs operated a hotel-slash-saloon-slash-gambling joint right there in Sherman, which also served as a home for he and his kinfolk. Rumor has it that it was Childs' own saloon where Bloody Bill's wife, Bush Smith, worked before that scoundrel made an honest woman out of her. Childs also established a horse track, with a little help from William Quantrill, to serve as a bit of amusement for his fellow bushwhackers. To be honest with you, I'm not overly brimming with particulars when it comes to Jim Crow's whereabouts or actions during the war, and what little info I have is a bit conflicting. He apparently did keep his saloon open during the course of the war and, per legend, even killed a couple of folks down there in Sherman. Both incidents were said to be over gambling debts. And most sources do seem to agree that at some point Childs returned to Missouri with Quantrill's Raiders before signing on with General Joseph Shelby's forces. While Jim Crow would participate in the massacre at Lawrence, Kansas, and on two separate occasions have his horse shot out from under him, he was also said to be more or less a hanger-on of the bushwhackers, as opposed to a 100% true blue full-time gorilla. Then again, yet another source from 1894 describes Childs as a, quote, king among bushwhackers. So make of that what you will. If the stories are true, by the close of the war, Childs was still riding under the flag of General Shelby, as he would accompany the Iron Brigade into Mexico rather than surrender to the U.S. military. If this sounds familiar, maybe you've seen the movie The Undefeated starring John Wayne. Shelby planned on joining up with Emperor Maximilian, but things just didn't work out, and by the fall of 1865, Jim Crow Childs was back in Texas to gather his family. He and Truman's then very pregnant Aunt Sally, along with their now two children, then relocated back to Independence, Missouri. And there are two different narratives when it comes to the life of Jim Crow Childs post-Civil War, one of which seems to be very firmly planted in the myth of the lost cause. Story goes that Childs had his property foreclosed on by them mean old carpetbaggers, forcing him to open up a seedy saloon just to make ends meet. And sure, maybe he continued to kill people right there in Independence, but as was the case with all good Southern gentlemen, these killings were always justifiable. What's more, not only was Jim Crow a good father and loyal husband, but his benevolent kindness even extended to his former slaves. Childs treated them so well, in fact, that they chose to remain living with he and his family even after they were set free, as is evidenced by the 1870 federal census. Now that's the fantasy version of Jim Crow. The view likely held by them who also think that Bloody Bill Anderson was a God-fearing man, simply defending his homeland against the oppressive northern aggression. In reality, Childs was meaner than hell and a damn holy terror as far as the good people of Independence, Missouri were concerned. 
Crow boasted that he held the entire town under his thumb, and he would walk about with a swagger, two heavy Colt Dragoons sticking out of his britches, a couple of Derringers stowed away just in case, and often with a very large bullwhip in his hand which he used to torment the local black populace. Jim was also said to work as sort of a treasurer for the bushwhackers, helping to store their valuables and money for them. That being the case, he is thought to have murdered fellow guerrilla Tom Jones in order to keep the man's belongings. Childs did claim self-defense and said that Jones was trying to steal his horse, but it is widely believed that Jim lured the man to his home with premeditated plans to just commit cold-blooded murder. When drunk, which was apparently often, Childs would mount his horse and ride around Independence looking for freed slaves to beat with his bullwhip. And he even killed two in cold blood, pumping them full of lead just to see them jump. All total, it's said that Jim Crow Childs killed nine men. I'm assuming that's as a civilian outside of his service during the war. And by 1873, he was still under indictment for three murders. Enter in Independence Assistant Marshal James Peacock. Oh boy, this is where things get really good. Trust me, you're going to want to stay tuned for this. I guarantee you, you've never heard of a fight quite like the one coming up. Real quick though, this episode is brought to you by... Alright, welcome back. Now that marshal there in Independence, James Peacock, he first came west at the tender age of 17 and volunteered for the Mexican-American War, ironically serving in the same unit as Jim Crow's daddy. Peacock fought in several engagements, including the Battle of Chihuahua, Yoquero Taco Bell, before heading to California as one of the many 49ers hoping to strike it rich. And once the Civil War began, the nearly 40-year-old Peacock decided to sit that one out. A somewhat strange choice considering that nearly everybody served one way or the other, and I have no idea as to the man's motivation, but maybe he figured that he had already done his part down in Mexico. As you'll soon hear, it certainly weren't a lack of nerve that stopped James Peacock from once again marching off to war. He would serve as the Marshal for Independence twice, and it was in that capacity that he and Uncle Jim Crow had their rendezvous with destiny. As far as I could tell, Childs had the entire damn town buffaloed. He pretty much did as he pleased, and nobody ever stood up to him. On the fateful day in question, September 21st, 1873, Childs was roaming the streets as usual, thoroughly liquored up, and just asking for a fight. Around 2 p.m., he attacked a man named Samson, who, just like everybody else, was too scared to even defend himself. Guess Childs found his unresponsive prey boring, so he went hunting for someone a little more lively, maybe someone with enough sand to make a fight out of it. And that's when he spied Marshall Peacock, standing at the door of Sullivan's Dry Goods. Now this was back in the day when normal healthy men carried around walking canes just for the hell of it. I guess it was fashionable. Then again, as we have heard on more than one occasion here on the Wild West Extravaganza, a walking cane does come in handy when you're looking to give someone a good pop nod upside their head. Which is what Jim Crow almost got. As it were, his wounds would end up being far worse than a simple strike from a walking cane. Peacock and Childs greeted each other with a few grown-up words, and Jim Crow slapped the lawman across the face, a blow which the marshal countered by attempting to strike the Confederate upside the head with that cane of his. In the course of just a few seconds, the pair fell to the sidewalk and pulled iron, both of them still holding on to one another with their free hands. The marshal's 23-year-old son, Charles, upon seeing that his daddy was in trouble, rushed to his aid and put a bullet in Jim Crow's side. But the gorilla continued to struggle, and what's more, he had a son as well, Elijah, who, believe it or not, was just a week away from his 13th birthday. He rushed in to help his father as well, and somehow, securing a revolver of his own, shot Marshal Peacock in the back right about the same time that the good Marshal decided to put a ball squarely under the left eye of Jim Crow Childs. 
Oh, but the fight ain't over yet. As the senior Childs is slumping to the ground dead, young Elijah and the marshal's boy Charles began emptying their pistols at one another. Charles Peacock took a round through the thigh, but was still able to squeeze off a fatal shot that struck 12-year-old Elijah under his left arm. Both James Peacock and his son would recover, with the marshal living all the way to the ripe old age of 89 and Charles passing in 1933 at the age of 83. By the way, James never did have that bullet removed from his back, or at least that's according to the March 26, 1907 edition of the Kansas City Journal, which also stated that the then 83-year-old James Peacock was still working, employed as a police judge, and that the job was his for as long as he was able. As for Jim Crow Childs and his boy Elijah, they were buried next to each other the following day there in Independence at the Woodlawn Cemetery. It's said that upon the demise of Jim Crow, the relieved citizens of Independence let out cheers and began throwing their hats up in the air in celebration. Gotta assume that old Harry Truman didn't talk about his uncle that much come election time. Speaking of Truman, it is worth mentioning that the president and Childs never did know each other, as Truman wasn't even born at the time of Jim Crow's demise. He did grow up there in Independence, though, hearing the stories, and there were plenty of stories to go around when it came to the various deeds and misdeeds of Uncle Childs. Also, lest anyone accuse me of being one-sided, it needs to be said that not everyone regarded Jim Childs as a monster. First off, don't let the thumbnail for this episode confuse you. That's not him. Uh, he was described by many as being a very handsome guy. Obviously, he was an agile dancer, was said to have been highly respected in Sherman, and very well known for his hospitality, taking in many a refugee from Missouri. When the Leavenworth Times broke the news of Child's death in 1873, they also offered up a somewhat balanced view of the man. While the article does describe Jim Crow as a desperado who exercised his terror over the town of Independence, and while doing so, killed several men, they also added the disclaimer that Jim's violent side only emerged when he was excited or in anger. The article then goes on, quote, At other times, he was a whole-souled gentleman, and his misfortune was a violent, uncontrollable temper and a will to pull the trigger at the slightest offense. He has hundreds of friends in this country who will mourn his death exceedingly, end of quote. There are also conflicting accounts as to whether or not Jim Crow's son Elijah had his own pistol or whether he picked his daddies up off the ground and then just continued the fight. I did read one account that stated young Elijah had to place his father's revolver between his knees just to cock it. As to the theory that Childs treated his slaves so good that they just continued to live with him even after emancipation, I do think this is a topic that very much needs to be treated with nuance. Sure, I guess it's possible that despite the many tales of Jim Crow Childs terrorizing and or killing other freed black men, maybe he did choose to treat his former slaves with kindness and generosity. Or maybe it's more likely that given his history and reputation, these people either feared for their lives if they dared to leave or were just made somehow dependent on Childs. Much like an abused wife who has no other choice but to stay with her tormentor. Even as recently as 2021, James Childs and his pro-slavery legacy was making national headlines when leaders from Johnson County, Kansas, just a stone's throw over the border from Independence, sought to change the name of a local creek. Negro Creek, found on maps as early as 1856, ran right through Childs' family property and the story goes that the name derived from one of Jim Crow's escaped slaves who chose to end his own life right there in the creek rather than to return to bondage. The other story, just as gruesome, states that either Jim or his father chased after the slave and gunned him down as he was in the water. 
So I don't know. Doesn't really sound like a nice guy. If you've ever seen the excellent movie Ride with the Devil, it looks like Jim Crow Childs may have loosely inspired the character Jack Bull Childs. Or at least the name. That said, the movie version of Childs, as portrayed by Skeet Ulrich, doesn't really seem to have much in common with the real-life Jim Crow, other than the two being from prominent families. Daniel Woodrell, the guy who wrote the novel that the movie's based on, Woe to Live On, does appear to have done a similar mix-match of names with other real-life gorillas as well. Thanks to the great David Lambert, I do have a link for the entire book available to read online for free in this episode's show notes. Disclaimer, I have not read it, but I would like to if I ever get the time, as I absolutely love that movie. Seriously, if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. I put a short clip in the show notes as well if you'd like a little teaser, check it out. And I think that's about all I've got on Jim Crow Childs. Shout out to listener George, who suggested this topic. This was one of those stories I found so interesting that I just immediately sat down and started writing, and here we are. For research on Childs, I primarily used excerpts from David McCullough's book Truman, Quantrell in Texas, The Forgotten Campaign by Paul Peterson, and Missouri Outlaws, Bandits, Rebels, and Rogues by Paul Kirkman. Link in the show notes to all three of these books. On the previous episode about Jose Chavez y Chavez, I made the offhand remark that Billy the Kid was the most famous outlaw of all time, and listener Dwight chimed in, stating, quote, I have to take a small issue with Billy being the most famous outlaw of all time. Jesse James was nationally famous while still alive and kicking, while Billy became a national hero slash villain long after his death. But he was definitely famous in New Mexico and surrounding environs. My vote will always go to Jesse as the most famous Old West outlaw of all time, and Jesse would definitely agree with me, but what do I know? End quote. First off, thank you, Dwight. And yeah, I agree in the sense that during their own lifetimes, Jesse James was absolutely more famous than Billy the Kid. And I do think that a lot of people have a very skewed idea of Billy's fame. This is where some of that misconception comes from in regards to the conspiracy surrounding the kid's death. After all, why wouldn't they have taken a photo of such a famous outlaw's body, such as they did with Jesse James? Dwight is absolutely correct here in that Billy wasn't that famous at the time of his death, at least not outside of New Mexico. Now, this is something I did touch on in the series about how the kid was relatively unknown until Walter Noble Burns sort of rediscovered him and wrote the book The Saga of Billy the Kid. Now, when I mentioned that Billy was the most famous outlaw of all time, I was speaking more about how we now are remembering these historical figures. I think when it comes to the names that even civilians and non-Old West history aficionados recognize, you got three people, right? You got Billy the Kid, Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, at least when it comes to outlaws. And as far as who's the most famous... I don't really know how to measure that. Uh, maybe who's had the most movies made about him. Um, and even then, it looks like Jesse James may have the slight edge. So good job, Dwight. But then again, for what it's worth, Billy was more popular among the senoritas. And I think that counts way more than movies. For everyone who's wrote in asking if I've seen the new series on Billy the Kid, no, I have not. I wish I could. Just don't have the time. Urgh. I have not watched an entire movie in one sitting in over four years. And I don't even think I have whatever channel the Billy the Kid series airs on. I do hope to watch it one of these days, though. All right, now, this next part has absolutely nothing to do with the Old West or history, so feel free to tap on out. This is something I've been asked about more than a few times, so I figure there's at least a little demand, so here we go. If you or somebody you know is considering starting a podcast, or if you've ever even contemplated starting a podcast, 
I am in the process of creating a course that will teach you everything you need to know. From coming up with a name, a topic, a format, the equipment you'll need, my personal recommendations when it comes to hardware, software, how to choose a hosting site, how to get your show on all the big names like Apple and Spotify, how to edit your audio, how to mix it, basically everything you'll need to go from a complete amateur with just an idea to having a professional sounding podcast. And this course will be specifically for people like myself who may not have any sort of background in audio. If you're a longtime listener, you know I've never been to college. I don't have any formal training in any of this. And I've been a machine operator or a forklift operator my entire life. When I started this show, I hadn't even owned a computer for like a decade. I did absolutely everything the wrong way at the beginning. So hopefully other people can learn from my mistakes. What I'm trying to say is you do not have to be technically savvy to have a podcast. And this course is just what I wish I had when I first started. No fluff, no grift, no BS, just honest, actionable advice. It will be recorded, so it won't be a live course, and you'll be able to go at your own pace. And uh, there's a lot of very bad advice out there, even from the quote-unquote podcasting gurus. And all I've got to offer you is my experience. I've learned a lot about podcasting over the past few years. And I can honestly say that having a show of my own has changed my life. All right, so the course has not yet been completed. But I just thought I'd let y'all know first, if this is something that you think you may be interested in, just go on over to my other website, hatcreekaudio.com. Shout out to everybody who knows what that Hat Creek stands for and sign up. Don't worry, it's free to sign up. I'm not going to be spamming your inbox. This is just a way for me to keep you updated and let you know when the course is ready. Hatcreekaudio.com, link in the show notes. FYI, this is not going to be a free course. I don't want to mislead anybody here. This is something I'm putting a lot of time into. But I do guarantee you that as a listener of the Wild West Extravaganza, you're going to get a pretty hefty discount. I'm talking like 50% off, homeboy. Once more, the course is not yet ready. Uh, when you go to hackreekaudio.com, you may see a course for podcasting on YouTube. That is not what I'm talking about. You can just ignore that unless you've already got a podcast and you want to learn about YouTube. Uh... You will also see a section under where you're going to enter in your name and email. It's going to be a box that says 60-minute coaching or 15-minute coaching. Just ignore those two unless you don't want to wait on the course and you have some really burning questions as to how to create and launch your own podcast. If that's the case, sure, go ahead and sign up and I'll help you out. All right, a huge thank you to all of you for your continued support of the Wild West Extravaganza. Shout out to the great and mighty Tim once more for contributing to the cause. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. How much I appreciate all of y'all that keep tuning in to listen to the words spewing out of my mouth. Shout out to everybody on Patreon and buy me a coffee. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Short episode this week, I know. We will be back next Wednesday revisiting an old topic. Al Swearingen, the owner and proprietor of the Cocksuckin' Jim Saloon in Cocksuckin' Deadwood, South Dakota. For all you longtime listeners who heard my very old episode on Al Swearingen, this is not simply a re-recording. This is a brand new episode on Al featuring a ton of information not included in the original. All right, till next time, try not to insult an entire ethnicity of people by reducing their culture down to a degrading song and dance routine. Try not to get drunk and slap a marshal in the face. And whatever you do, watch out for 12-year-olds with cap and ball coats. Adios.
Taco Bell.